For the talk this morning, I want to talk about the Psalms. We've touched on them a little bit here and there, but I, I think they need a little bit closer, closer um, uh, look directly. Um, that's why I had everyone grab the little shorter Christian prayer. Well, you can put it at the side for right now, but I'll tell you when you, you're going to need that. But if the whole goal of this retreat is the idea that, you know, uh, knowing your Bible and praying your Bible helps you to pray better, um, then it's worth noticing that the church chose the Psalms, chose this part of the Bible, especially as its way to pray. This was the one that the church itself, in its own way, kind of canonized as our prayers. Um, the church puts the words of the psalmist uh, on the church's own lips again and again and again uh, throughout our liturgies, through the, through the Mass. I mean, you already have an, a lot of psalm quotes throughout the Mass, um, but if you, uh, if you go to a Mass that uses the anaphons rather than like songs, so like a weekday Mass or, um, or uh, another Mass that just doesn't, you know, sometimes you have no musician at your 7.30 morning mass. like, okay, we're doing the antiphons, right? The antiphons are the psalms. And, and you see that in the pre-1962 mass, the extraordinary form, you see that where all of their, um, their um, music at certain points is, the, is antiphons, and it usually is the, the psalms of the church. Sometimes maybe just one or two lines, but like, that encompasses um, the whole thing. Um, the Liturgy of the Hours, of course, its main body is built around the set of psalms you do for that, for that hour. Um, stations of the Cross, as we heard on Friday night, there's lots of times in the stations where the reflection came out of the psalms. And not just, you know, the obvious lament psalms or, or the psalms that we associate with the crucifixion, but, you know, little bits here and there, like, oh, that's a great line, that really fits. And then uh, any number of our older rituals also have uh, a lot of psalmage if I can make up a word, um, in there. Um, just because, that again, that's the way the church prays. That is the, the words that she chooses to put on her own lips. This is the point I was going to make uh, yesterday, but I, I held off on it because I think it fits better here. It's fascinating to compare the Old and New Testaments that um, they really do have a lot of overlap in, in this sense. Um, so when you're a kid and you're learning about the Bible, you learn that the Old Testament has its Torah, right? The first three books, the essential, you know, the law, literally, the law, those five books of, of Moses, uh, right? And then it has its history books, you know, so Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings and stuff like that, all through Chronicles and whatnot. Um, it has its... Uh, prophetic books, right? It has um, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It has its wisdom books, you know, of Job and Psalms. Well, hold on, Psalms. Job's and wisdom and Syriac and stuff like that. It has all those, those things. And the New Testament, you're like, oh, it doesn't have those nice breakdowns. But it kind of does, right? I mean, the core story is the gospel in the same way that if you asked a Jewish person, what's the core of your Old Testament? They'd say, the Torah is everything. Those five books are the key. Everything after that is just basically commentary on that, they would say. And in fact, if you were a Sadducee, you would say that the only ones you have to believe is the first five. The rest are actually not necessarily uh, necessary for belief. Um, uh, you know, so you've got the core. And so we're like, you know, the gospel and the Torah kind of line up nicely. Here's your core story, Old and New Testament. There is one history book in the 
the New Testament, rather than a bunch of history books, we call it the Acts of the Apostles. It tells the story once we, you know, once Jesus is ascended, then where's the rest of the story go? And it's, it's kind of like the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles books of the Old Testament. Um, we have wisdom literature. That really is what Paul's letters are. Paul, you know, Paul's not telling narrative story. Paul is telling you what you need to know, how you need to act, what you need to think, what you need to learn, uh, how you need to pray, that kind of stuff. So it is kind of the wisdom literature. And there is a prophetic book. Um, the, the book of Revelation is kind of the prophecy of, of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. Notice what they didn't remake. They didn't redo Psalms. There are no new, there's no new book of songs. There's no new book of poetry in the New Testament. It seems like it's the one place where the uh, early apostles and their writers said, you know, we're good. I think we got that. I think those 150 covered everything we need to cover. And, and the fact that they quote the Psalms so copiously in their other places. Paul, the Gospels, a little bit in Acts, um, you know, Peter and John, they, they quote from the Psalms pretty regularly. Revelation is fascinating because Revelation quotes Scripture all the time but never quotes it directly. Um, it's, uh, it's almost like he was trying to avoid plagiarism lawsuits. Um, like, literally, like, the, the Old Testament is all over the book of Revelation, but never a direct quote. It's always slightly changed. So you can defeat, like, the online, you know, cheater reader thing. No, it just seems that the person, presumably John, who wrote Revelation, knows his Bible so well, but he just builds it in, weaves it in automatically without worrying about a direct quote the way, like, a Matthew does. So it's fascinating that, that the church, you know, earliest days of the church, they said, we're good on songs. We already have everything we need, and we can apply that. There are a few canticles in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, too. Um, we'll talk about those with the Liturgy of the Hours. But otherwise, the Psalms kind of stay on their own. And from early, early on, the church picked that up. The, um, the idea of a Psalter as this body of prayer and going through them all <clears throat> comes from the days of the, uh, the, the Desert Fathers, the Desert Monks in the 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s, Excuse me. As they would do their work throughout the day, you know, maybe they're like weaving baskets or whatever. Um, and as they would sit there doing their work, they would pray the psalms as they went, and they would just start out in Psalm one and just go right through. It's amazing to think that they had the entire psalter memorized. But you know, when all you do all day is make baskets, you got some time in your head, you know. So they could do that. And you know, the older guys teach the younger guys, and they probably kind of chanted it or found some way to make it more. Um, stick in their memory and, and stuff like that. And we know that, you know, St. Augustine tells us famously, who, he who sings well prays twice. And I leave out the well when I talk to the little kids because I don't want them to worry about if they're singing well or not. That's the last thing you need to tell a seventh grade boy, you know. It's only praying twice if you're singing well. Well, none of the seventh grade boys are singing well. They're all singing in two different registers, right? Um, but that's okay. You just you know, you want them to sing, and, and that will be uh, their prayer, and hopefully their, their prayer twice. But the church has, has taken this as core. Funny little aside here, but I want to throw it in. Um, a friend of mine, oh, actually, sorry, the son of one of our retreat uh, uh, participants, Gene here, uh, Scott made this point to me one day. I was at a new parish, and I was, um, and I was talking uh, about how we're the new parish. We have no money. I uh, can't get good musicians. Uh, Scott is a, uh, a choral conducting student at USC, and Scott's a good friend of mine. He wrote music for my first mass, um, and so when I have music questions, I turn to Scott. And, uh, and when I was talking to Scott, uh, I said, you know, I just think we're going to have to, like, go without music. Like, we, it's a small parish. We've got 120 families. I just don't know how we, we can do anything, and, you know, we'll just, um, you know, recite stuff. And he goes, 
I don't think you can do that. I'm like, well, you're a music nerd. Of course that's what you think, right? You know, that's how you guys think about the world. You know, you got to have music. And he's like, no, like, look through your Roman Missal. Like, you know, it doesn't tell you anything about pews or lights or air conditioning, but it constantly tells you what to be singing. He says, if you were to take the church literally, it would tell you you could do this in a field, but you got to sing it. Okay. And, and, and he, says, he says, more to the point, like, Catholics deserve their inheritance. We uniquely have this patrimony of music that, that the, the other denominations in the Western church simply don't have. And when they never get to hear, you know, the, the songs of the church, if they never get to hear the exultet sung, if they never get to hear, you know, our, our things that we use specifically, you know, at, at, at the Passion Week and stuff like that, you know, you're really robbing them of their inheritance. And, and they deserve better than you. <laughs> Like, dang, okay, all right, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and but I took that home and I was like, okay, we're going to figure this out. We will get music because they deserve it. It is your inheritance. It's your patrimony. Um, so that's what made me think it was worth it when we got a little bit of money to be like, you know, we're going to go and we're going to get some good singers from Hastings College. And by golly, we're getting music. So, it, and, and but it, it stuck with me ever since then that. You know, and that's also an argument for why we don't just do whatever the coolest, newest song in the OCP missile is. The idea that, like, people have a right to hear Pange Lingua on Holy Thursday, if nothing else. They have a right to hear, you know, you chant, you know, behold the wood of the cross when you come in on Good Friday. They have a right to hear these beautiful things and not just have them relegated, you know, to, well, okay, we, we have our Christmas songs so people know them and love them. Like, no, you deserve to hear the songs, the music, the psalms of the church. So, um, thank you for your son, Scott. <laughs> he, he's taught me lots. Um, but, um, yeah, so singing is important, and the psalms are how we do that. And also, it's cool that, like, you know, the psalms, you know, 150 psalms collects this amazing collection of our feelings. And if you think about it, if the psalms are reasonably dated to, like, 1,000 or 900 B.C., those might be some of the earliest feelings recorded as pure feelings. You know, that puts them about on the same timeline as Homer, and Homer gives you feelings, right? You know, when, when Patroclus dies, you feel the pain, right? When Homer dies, or when, when um, Hector dies, you feel the shame. You know, you feel the longing of, of Odysseus for home, but it's in the midst of a narrative story. The idea that you would just write down again and again, I feel crappy today. I feel great today. Lord, I was feeling crappy, but then you reminded me of your past mercies, and I feel better today. You know, the idea that you would have this, I don't think there's anything else in at least what we have of of civilization. I'm not sure we have anything else that mushy, that old. I don't think there's anything else that just gives you raw feelings that early in in at least what we have uh, in in, in human history. Uh, I'll check with Jen on that one afterwards. She might be able to, you know, correct me on that. Um, So, uh, you know, but it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the church values them so much, because the church affirms all that is human, right? We are not Gnostics. We are not dualists. We are not body bad, soul good, right? You know, and so we affirm all things that make us human, which means our bodies and our feelings and our thoughts and our imaginations and our relationships, all those things the church affirms as being good and therefore human. God made it, therefore it's good. God, you know, gave Adam and Eve the feelings so that, you know, they could rejoice in the garden and they could cry when they were driven out, that they could be happy at the birth of their child and sad at the death of 
of their child at the hand of another child, right? And from the get-go, those are part of it. Feelings aren't bad. And a, a line that I don't know where I first heard it, but it's been one of the most helpful things for me to use in, in spiritual direction, even in confessions, is just the line, feelings deserve to be felt. I want you to hear that and write it down and memorize it and call it to mind a lot. Feelings deserve to be felt. What we do with those feelings does matter, right? You know, when you get mad in traffic, you can't just go ram the other car. That's not a feeling deserving to be felt. That's an action coming off your feeling. But to simply be like, don't get angry, good Catholics, don't get angry. Good Catholics get angry. Good Catholics have justifiable anger. And it doesn't have to be justifiable. It's a feeling. Like, so, you know, when something happens, like, you know, you suddenly find out, you know, you, you're, you bought your ticket ahead and you get to the movie theater and the, the machine broke and now you can't go watch you know, whatever the next Marvel movie is, you know, you know, you're bummed and you have a right to be angry, right? You know, you don't go punch the movie theater exec, you know, but, but you have a right, like feelings deserve to be felt. Our set, and that's what we say, no one can tell you how long to mourn after someone dies because feelings deserve to be felt. If you need two years, take it, you know, and, and if, and if you're also, you know, the person that gets over things quickly or deals them differently, that's fine too, Right. I think that's something the church fathers especially appreciated about the Psalms. It's kind of like you, when you read the church fathers, you feel like they're saying, there's a Psalm for that. Yeah, there's a Psalm for that. There's a Psalm for that. Again and again, whatever they're talking about, they always seem to be able to pull out a Psalm out of nowhere. Like, you know, as it says in this Psalm, and boom, they pull out some obscure half verse, but it hits on, you know, what they're talking about. Um, and this is why the church prays the whole Psalter. In the, in the normal um, Liturgy of the Hours, it's a four-week cycle. Um, the the uh, uh, old pre-1962 extraordinary form Psalter um, does it all in one week. Um, and I would be interested to know how many psalms you get to hear in the course of just a year or three years in the church's Sunday readings. I bet you get a good chunk, um, but I, I, don't, I haven't seen a stat on that. Um, but the reason why the church prays the whole Psalter is because it is the prayer of the whole church, that the whole church has that mix of different experiences, emotions, and places um, where you're at. I think it's Augustine who talks about, you know, it's hard when you're praying in the liturgy a uh, psalm of rejoicing and you're feeling down. And it's also kind of hard when you're, like, you're excited and the church gives you this lament psalm. And you're like, gosh, downer, right? You know, I'm having a good day and you come here with, you know, my only companion is darkness, um, emo. Um, but on the other hand, it's hard, you know, when you're, when you're hurting and then, you know, the church is like, you know, you know, all you rivers, clap your hands, shout for joy before the Lord. And you're like, I don't feel like shouting anything other than, like, I'm angry. But Augustine's point is that the whole church, somebody's feeling that right now, right? So, and he says that, like, when you are reading an element psalm but you don't feel that, know that there's part of the world, part of the church that's being persecuted right now. There's a person right now who is down in the dumps. There's a person right now who feels utter despair, and that's why you pray it, because you're praying with them. And in the same way, even when you feel like garbage, and the psalm says, hallelujah, you say it too, because there's somebody right now who just gave birth to a child they've been waiting five years to be able to conceive. There's somebody who, you know, just got into med school. There's somebody who just found out their uh, grandma's cancer is in remission, right? Um, And there's just somebody who's having a nice sunny day with no wind in their face and no pollen, right? And so they're praising the trees that they would normally be cursing, right? Um, so you pray the whole, the whole Psalter. People break up the Psalms in different ways, uh, into different uh, clumps. You'll hear five or seven or eight, depending on who you talk to. I like 
5 as a breakdown. You have praise psalms. Um, you have lament psalms. You have wisdom psalms, which are kind of like, where it's just like reflecting on life, uh, maybe on creation, maybe on experience, um, maybe on Torah, uh, maybe on the law, things like that. Uh, you have royal psalms, psalms that are very distinctly about the king or the king's city, um, victory, uh, the role of, of the king and stuff like that. The fifth one sometimes gets confused with the first one because it's actually hard to tell the difference in Hebrew between what's praise and what's thanksgiving. But the fifth one is a thanksgiving psalm. Um, the fact that they say again and again, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, kind of says, well, that needs to be a genre. But it's hard to distinguish what's the actual feeling of between a praise and a thanksgiving psalm. Um, in the Liturgy of the Hours, there's actually some pretty broad test, uh, tendencies about these. In general, morning prayer psalms are about praise and devotion. Or you might say praise and love. Wake up in the morning, open up your your morning prayer, and it's going to be heavy praise or this sense of like longing, devotion, love, commitment, stuff like that. Evening prayer, the other kind of hinge hour. Morning prayer and evening prayer are the big hinges of the day. They're the longest hours. They have the most stuff. That's your, your lauds and your vespers. Evening prayer has, um, uh, it emphasizes thanksgiving and confidence. Confidence in the Lord. And that kind of makes sense. You've reached the end of the day, um, and you, you uh, are thanking him for the day, and confidence as you move on towards night. So as the sun comes up, we praise him. As the sun goes down, we give him thanks and, uh, and, and are confident in his, his support. Night prayer, the other one that fits in the little shorter Christian prayer. Uh, night prayer has, um, they're literally about sleep. They're literally about the night. Um, almost all of them make some reference in some way to the night or the night watchman or I close my eyes and sleep, um, you know, stuff like that. They're pretty, <laughs> they're pretty literal. Um, but with that comes an emphasis on trust and safety that as I go to sleep, um, I mean, you even think of what we say in um, the little uh, antiphon before um, the night prayer canical. Um, uh, Protect us, Lord, as we stay awake. Watch over us as we sleep, that awake we may keep watch with Christ and asleep rest in his peace. And the response right before that is, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. So um, there is an intentional mimic of night prayer lining up with the night of your life. That as you go to bed, there's always that sense of, not just, I might die tonight, which is always true. Um, but you also might get gored by an ox in the middle of the field, Mr. Monk. Um, you know, so, but I mean, because the monks really put these together. But as they were going to bed, they said, going to bed is our daily equivalent of laying down to die. And so we do our kind of end of day and end of life ideas together. Daytime prayer, which you don't see like in this little book much, um, is, uh, has, uh, it's, it's a little more generalized, but in general, there's a sense of, like, there's work to be done, uh, kind of psalms of, of um, work to be done, continuation, efforts, and stuff like that. Um, and then Office of Readings kind of just catches everything else. Office of Readings is the hour that doesn't fit to a certain time. Uh, it comes at the beginning of the day because the monks used to pray it during the middle of the night. Um, when you, uh, did anybody actually ever have to learn Frere Jacques in the French, like when you are in grade school or in preschool? Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, dormez-vous, dormez-vous. Are you sleeping? Sonne matatina. Literally, matins is ringing. 
Uh, that's the matutina. That, so the matins are ringing in the middle of the night. So you're trying to wake up Brother John, Brother Jacques, in the middle of the night because he's sleeping through matins, right? So you wake him up to say, come on, matin bells are ringing, get, get down to the chapel. Um, so matins is the, old, is the office of readings of the old days, but now you can put it anywhere you want. So some people do them before they go to bed. Some people just do them in the middle of the day with their meditation, stuff like that. But um, the, the, they really catch all the other psalms. Um, so there's no, it's more like wisdom and history psalms and stuff like that. The old Psalter, pre-1962, had um, kind of bigger chunks. There was five psalms on most of the uh, uh, hours, and so oftentimes they had bigger runs. It'd be like, you know, Psalm 120, 121, 122, 123. Now they're broken up a little more over the four weeks, and so they tend to be more thematic with the things I just described. But even back then, they had some of that. Um, so really briefly, I want to have us look even just, just if, uh, if your ribbon is still where it was from this morning, or close to it, if you look on page 192... You'll actually see this. 192, Psalm 93. Um, the Lord is king with majesty and robe. The Lord has robed himself with might. He has girded himself with power, right? So what are you doing? You're telling God how awesome he is. That's basically what praise is. Hey, God, you're cool, and I know it. That's praise, right? Um, it's hard to actually describe it any other way. Like, it, it's not practical. Praise is the least practical of all of our kinds of prayer, which is probably why it's the most pure, right? Supplication, I want stuff. Contrition, I want stuff, specifically forgiveness. Thanksgiving, it's more like praise, but there's still a sense of like, you did this for me, I'm thanking you. Kind of like, you know, you make sure to say thanks, you know, to your elders, you know, so they continue to give you candy and stuff like that, right? That's what your mom always tells you, say thank you. Um, Praise doesn't even have that. It's utterly pure. It's just, you're awesome. I know it. I'm just saying it. I don't have to, but I'm gonna, right? Um, The canticle. Now, in the Morning prayers, you get an Old Testament canticle on a four-week rotation. Uh, in, the new te- in the evening prayer, you get a New Testament canticle on a uh, one-week rotation, just because there's less canticles. Um, we today did the Daniel one, the one from the, the uh, three young men in the furnace, that as they sit in the fire, they praise. It's interesting. They do a lot of praising of, like, frost and chill, ice and snow, probably because they're in a furnace. Um, you know, they're not dying, but it's still warm. Um, and, and that's kind of the, one of the most famous long stretches of, you know, praise. Bless the Lord. Look on the next page at Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all you angels. Praise him, all his hosts. So a classic chunk of praise. And that last run of 145 to 150 is like solid praise nonstop. If you're looking for a praise psalm, go to the end of the Psalter. Go to like Psalm 145 through 150. You'll find great stuff uh, right there. But let's go ahead and flip the page to evening prayer. Flip two pages ahead. Uh, to 198. Um, I've referenced this uh, last night, but Psalm 110, it's a royal psalm, but it's also a a, a psalm of, I guess you would say, of of confidence. Uh, And on Sunday night prayer, this is always the first psalm you get. Um, It's this messianic psalm of, um, you know, the Lord raising up his Messiah, raising up his own son uh, in, in a certain role. Um, look under the next psalm, Psalm 11. It says it right there in the first line. I will thank the Lord with all my heart in the meeting of the just in their assembly. So there's that thanksgiving of evening prayer. You flip the page to um, the, the um, canticle on uh, evening prayer is a little different. It switches during Lent um, to one that, well, first of all, it doesn't say Alleluia 19 times, um, but also just emphasizes Jesus' suffering. Uh, but otherwise, it, 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 it oftentimes is from Revelation, giving that, that sense of praise and thanksgiving. Go ahead and actually flip ahead. Let's just look at Monday just for comparison. Uh, page 203. 
Um, Psalm 84 is uh, about the temple, um, and that has that sense of, like, devotion, longing, I want to be in your presence um, that, I, that I talked about. So it's praise or devotion. Uh, the canticle from Isaiah on page 205, um, this image of all the nations streaming to the house of the Lord. Reminder for the people who didn't want to hear it, the Jonah types, you know, that God actually wants to heal the whole world through Israel, not just save Israel and crush the nations. Um, and then Psalm 96, O sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. O sing to the Lord, bless his name. That praise, like I'm just singing out. I love that image of sing a new song. You know, we say it all the time, you know, and we have our music, sing a new song, right? But like, it's kind of crazy if you actually dig down, like, what does that mean? It's saying, we don't have the songs for this. God has done something new. God has done his victory, whether it be for David or Solomon or Jesus. And we need to write a new song. We need to come up with, I don't have the words. None of our current songs cover this. I need to come up with a new one. It's fun to think about, like, you know, that means whenever a new song is written, like, there was a day, you know, before, you know, the Beatles made it to America where no one had heard, I want to hold your hand, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, there was a moment where it was there, right? You know, there was, you know think of, like, your favorite song, you know, growing up in high school. Like, this was the one that, that was, this was your jam. There was a day that you didn't know it, and then there was a day that you did. And you're like, yes, that, that's my song, right? And, and that, that's, that's kind of what we're hitting on when we say, sing a new song. Like, I don't have words for this. I need to make something new to express what's being felt here. And just finally, to do this part, let's look then at Evening Prayer, page 209. Um, this hits on that idea of confidence. To you I have lifted up my eyes, you who dwell in the heavens. My eyes like the eyes of slaves on the hands of their Lord. So you're saying, I trust. I'm like a servant. I'm like um, a handmaid with this sense of, of trust in the Lord. Next one down, 124. These are some of those psalms of ascents. Um, uh, if the Lord had not been on our side, this is Israel's song. If the Lord had not been on our side when men rose against us, then would they have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled. But instead, we didn't get crushed, right? The waters went over them. The Lord saved us. Blessed be the Lord who did not give us a prey to their teeth. Our life like a bird has escaped from the snare of the fowler. So it's this, this great sense. And there's that, that line that we know, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Like um, when you have the, the Episcopal blessing at a big mass with a bishop, right? That's what he always says before the blessing. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that, that great sense of thanksgiving there. So, okay, you can put those away. That just gives you a sense of what we're talking about here. I mentioned this little book the other day, uh, the little perfect prayer book, the My Daily Psalm book. Uh, again, it uses the, the older set of the psalms, but it, it does have that great sense of these are your different, um, different psalms for different times of the day and stuff like that. The last thing I want to do here is to just hit a couple of psalms. Like when you're looking for like what, when you know, well, how do I know? There's 150 of them. How am I going to know what to pray? Um, so this might be easier to look in your Bible on, or you can just ignore the Bible and just like listen to me rattle. Um, So I'm just going to hit, like, some key psalms that are ones that are important either for the church's life or maybe for your personal life. Psalm 1 is actually really important, not just because it's the first one, because it is kind of random. It kind of, it's just a wisdom psalm that seems to come out of nowhere, but it sets the theme. Um, This, this whole sense of, um, happy are those who follow the counsel of the wicked, that don't go in the way of sinners, nor sit in the company of scoffers. Rather, the law of the Lord is their joy. And, and, and then it sets up the idea of, but not the wicked. They're driven out like by the, cha- by the wind, like chaff. 
Um, they will not survive judgment. So he sets up two paths. And that's a very wisdom sort of thing to do, to say, like, you have two options, the path of peace and prosperity or the, si- the path of, like, wrath and woe. It's what Moses does in Deuteronomy, and it, it's kind of a constant through wisdom. But it's a good way to start the book of Psalms to say, like, you can learn from this and grow and prosper like a tree planted near running water, or you can be an idiot, you know, and, and ignore, you know, like, the, the, the lessons in here. Um, psalm 2, I mentioned, is a, a big messianic psalm. Um, in the beginning, it just talks about the nations, the Gentiles, you know, raging against uh, the Lord and his people. But then it talks about how, um, uh, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord derides them. Then, speaks to, then he speaks to them in anger, ter- terrifies them in wrath. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord who said to me, you are my son, today I am your father. And you'll even see St. Peter reference this when he's talking to the Jewish elders in the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. He'll say, as it says in the second psalm, you are my son, this day uh, I have become your father. So there's a strong reference of the way to, to have your place amongst all the pagan nations is the, the Lord sending his Messiah, the son of God. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to Psalm 19. This one gets picked up in a lot of uh, musical settings, uh, but it's also a great one for us to think about uh, in terms of what is God doing. The famous opening line, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim its builder's craft. One day to the next conveys the message. One night to the next imparts that knowledge. Uh, So it's the idea that the heavens themselves, the world, the creation, is itself a song to God. Um, Paul will use this in, in Romans 1 and 2 saying that, you know, even if you didn't have God's revelation through his scriptures like we Jewish people did, you could have looked around the world and seen, like, that he's working, you know. And this is a, a thing, and he, Paul points this out in the Areopagus, right, that, you know, guys like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, they understood there must be a creator behind this creation here, um, and so it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a setup for that. But when it hits the second part at vo- verse 8, it jumps. It's been talking about creation, and then it switches to talking about the law, to Torah. And that's a very constant Jewish theme that I think we underappreciate. That, like, their whole point is the God who gave the world its creation gave us, Israel, the Torah. And the, and the same God is showing his wisdom in both. And we're called to, you know follow Torah so that we can then be good stewards of the earth. And it doesn't just mean environmentalism, right? Like, there's more to it than just, like, you know, I take care of, like, you know, the trees. It's the sense of, like, what do we do for justice for the world? And that's that vocation that first all mankind had, they lost in the garden, and then Israel is called back to to kind of be the new creation. As we saw, the Israel grows but the strength of Israel wanes to the point you have one who can be the true Israel, the true Israelite, the one who can take um, their vocation to its final testing point on the cross, and he can become the new man. Okay. Um, Psalm 22, I just want to point out, this is the one that we, we hear on Good Friday. Uh, it's the one that Jesus quotes. Um, you're probably familiar with the idea that Oftentimes, the first line of a psalm was considered its title, or you, if you named that line, it kind of called everything up. So when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, which should call to mind for all his listeners, everything in Psalm 22. Um, that's important because it is the most you know, accurate description of what he's going through. Um, 
this description uh, on verse 7. I am a worm, hardly a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. You relied on the Lord. Let him deliver you. If he loves you, let him rescue you. So Jesus is, you know, in one sense saying, look, I'm doing Psalm 22 right now. And, he, and the Pharisees and Sadducees who would have heard it would have recognized that's Psalm 22. Now, whether they heard that or they just thought, that's right, he's calling out to God. And some of them said, oh, look, he's calling on uh, Elijah, because Eli, Eli, Lamet Sabachthani is the Hebrew of it. Um, but then the person who's really listening here is, it doesn't end in sadness. It's not Psalm 88, because when you come down to verse like uh, 23, after he's already talked about, you know, my hands are torn I think the crucifixion, my tongue cleaves to my mouth like the crucifixion. Uh, Then he says, then I will proclaim your name to the assembly. In the community, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob give him honor. And goes on further to talk about how he saved him, he raises him up, etc. So there's this thought of, is Jesus saying, you know, yes, you have me in this spot, but God will save me. You know, we'll never understand the depth of that line. This side of heaven, we will never understand, as uh, G.K. Chesterton says, what it means when God feels bereft of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's a lot of stuff we can roll around in our heads as we try and ponder what does that line mean. Is it a quote? Is it a cry? Is it a declaration? Is it even a, a mockery of the, the chief priest? Maybe all of the above. Psalm 30. Thanksgiving for deliverance. This is one of the ones that becomes, after the fact, an Easter psalm. It becomes a place where we, we look for, um, you know, uh, the idea of, you know, oh, this is what Jesus is fulfilling. I mean, because Jesus says on the road to Emmaus, you know, it says, he went through all the scriptures and showed him that the Messiah must suffer and die. It's not in there. Like, we all take that for granted, but if you actually looked through the Old Testament, you will not find that. Right? And that's why no one saw it coming. The only chapter about the idea of even one person suffering for the nation is only Isaiah 53. There's nothing else like that. And there's nothing else that would make you think a person is going to die and in this same space-time continuum rise again. Martha says, Lord, I know he'll rise on the last day. But like no one else is thinking that. It's only after the crazy event of Easter Sunday morning that they start going back and being but you could read this this way, couldn't you? You could take that that way, couldn't you? When it says lifted up, raised up, saved from Sheol, now I can understand it in a different way. But they didn't hear it that way. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had what we had last Sunday where they said, and they debated among themselves what rising from the dead meant, right? They would have been like, oh, it's in the Psalms. No, they didn't see it in the Psalms. It's only after the fact that they went back and saw it. So Psalm 30. I praise you, Lord, for you have raised me up. You did not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You kept me from going down to the pit. To them, they would have heard that as like, you saved me in battle. You didn't let me die. You didn't let my enemies have victory over me. They would have thought of Sheol as metaphorical. It's only after Jesus comes back to like, oh, you actually came back from the netherworld. Crazy. Right? That's the difference that they would have heard in that moment. Um, and then, yeah, so there, I mean, you can, with a lot of these, dive in that. I'm just going to point out 42 and 43 are one that you might want to just mark. They're a great psalm for when you're, you're struggling, as like N.T. Wright said last night, you know, when you're, you're in the garden. 42 and 43 are actually kind of really one psalm. Um, 
with each uh, with, with 42 having two big stanzas and 43 being kind of the third stanza, um, and each of them ends with the famous refrain, "Why are you cast down, my soul? Why do you groan within me? Hope in God, I will praise Him still." It's one of the more lyrical points. Um, the the author feels depressed. They feel. Um, deprived of God's presence. They long to be back home in Jerusalem. They long to see the temple because the temple is God's presence in their midst. They're looking for that and they're not finding it. And so, you know, they are, they're longing for that. And so, but each one ends with this turn. Why are you cast down my soul? Why groan within me? Hope in God. I will praise him still, my savior and my God. Um, so that's just a good one to kind of like lock away. Like, when do I feel cruddy? 42, 43. Um, I'm just going to point out 45 to 48 are some really good royal psalms. 51 is our most famous, um, uh, what we call penitential psalm, which is a lament psalm, but specifically for my own sins. Um, you'll even say it right there. Um, for the leader, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, came to him after his affair with Bathsheba. So after he... Uh, cheated with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and then killed Uriah to hide the pregnancy, um, and all that, then he does Psalm 51. And that's our classic, have mercy, O God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. Awash me more and more from my guilt, from my sin, deliver me. That's our most perfect penitential psalm, and we use it a lot in the season of Lent. Um, 66, I just want to point out, when you think of, like, devotion, like, so are there any, like, love psalms, right? You know, you you think of, like, you know, like a St. Therese or some other contemplative, you know, and their thoughts on this, you know, you know, what's the, what do we have for that? 66 is the closest. Oh, God, you are my God. For you, I long. For you, my soul is thirsting. Like a dry, weary land without water, my soul thirsts for you. So it's more of a devotion psalm than a praise psalm. 74 is just interesting. It's, it's a very specific psalm. It's about the destruction of the temple and them taking all this stuff. It's also one that we call to mind when we think of how they've uh, taken our beautiful churches and taken out all the nice, beautiful stuff and put in junky, modern junk. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, Psalm 74, the destruction of the temple, i.e. modernist reconstruction of beautiful Catholic churches. Yep, that was a little political. Um... <laughs> um I'm going to keep on moving quicker here. Uh, 91, um, it, it's the Sunday night prayer psalm. It's really beautiful. Unfortunately for a lot of us, it's been ruined by the song Eagle's Wings. Um, uh, I'm just going to tell the truth on that. Uh, but it is, it is this beautiful psalm. And, and, and like Jesus quotes it, you know, uh, frequently. Um, you know, it is this great image of safety and protection. Uh, we're under the, 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 God, the Father's wings. You know, the angels will lift us up rather we, lest we strike our foot against a stone. Also in Greek, it has the word basilisk, which is cool. Um, and then let's see. Um, 103 and 104 are kind of just uh, some really good, like, reflection psalms on, like, the goodness of the Lord. Uh, 103 is kind of reflection on his love. 104 is a correct reflection on his creation. 104 is when we especially connect with Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, um, ordinations. It's what you kind of sing in the background uh, with the uh, uh, Vani Creato Spiritus. Um, we actually recite it when we do the prayer to the Holy Spirit. Um, where's the line? I'm not sure I can find the line. Um, Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of love. Pour forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. That's uh, out of Psalm 104. Um, 110, I mentioned, is another big uh, messianic psalm. We saw it earlier. 
118 was the one I referenced as like the greatest of all the Easter Psalms. And again, it gets used a lot by the church in its early days. Um, 126 um, is one of those Psalm of the Ascents. Um, it's just a good one when you're, when you're struggling. Um, and it's the story of them coming back from the exile. Uh, and it has the, the famous lines we know about, um, those who sow in tears will reap with cries of joy. Those who go forth in weeping, carrying sacks of seed, will return with cries of joy, carrying their bundled sheaves. And we use that like on the feast day of martyrs and stuff like that. Yes, they go out weeping, they come back rejoicing. Um, I just point out 127 and 128 are uh, some great family psalms. They're about the home, the house, the family, the husband, the wife, the children. I mean, who doesn't compare their wife to a, you know, a beautiful olive plant growing strong in their courtyard? Who doesn't do that? And as I mentioned, finally, 145 to 150 are like this big run of praise psalms at the end, the, the five or six hallelujah psalms at the end. So I'm just going to stop there because I've said a lot. Um, but that hopefully gives you a little bit of traction so you're not like approaching this Psalter with like 150 psalms. How will I ever get used to it? Liturgy of the Hours is great because it gets you used to the idea of hearing them rhythmic, rhythmically and regularly, and it kind of builds up a knowledge. Even if you like, haven't really studied it, you still have these psalms on the tip of your tongue and stuff like that. Um, and then like diving in when you're like, I need some stuff. Even like this little black book you know, from like decades ago even has what you see in a lot of, you know, you find on websites, modern things like, you know, are you depressed? Read this psalm. Consolation? Read this one. Uh, victim of ingratitude? Read this one. You know, here are some psalms for morning prayers, evening prayers, before communion, after communion, visits the blessed sacrament, before confession, for the church, for confidence, in temptation, in sorrow, for health. So, like, there's a lot of stuff. And use your tools. Use the internet. God bless Google, right? You know, um, because it, it gives us a great way, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Somebody else probably already did it. They're probably a Baptist, but thank them anyway. Um, you know, so uh, I'm going to stop here. We have Mass at 11. Again, sing loud and proud. It's, uh, it's uh, the Lord's Day.